Hi, I'm Andy Bush. How are you doing? The nights are drawing in, and we'd like to welcome you to another spine-chilling episode of Scarred for Life, a troubling voyage into the dark dystopian pop culture of the 1970s, 80s, and beyond. I'm joined, as seen on recent webinar, Steve Brotherstone and David Lawrence, co-authors of the runaway success Scarred for Life books. Every week, we're going to be speaking to a special guest who'll be bringing with them three horrific childhood memories of something that has literally terrified them since childhood. Before we say hello to this week's guest, let's very quickly check out some listener scars where you guys get in touch with us uh, um, with, with stuff that's kind of scared you from when you were a kid. And we've had some brilliant ones this week. Hi to Richard Jones, who says, Raston Robot from The Five Doctors. Just some guy in a leotard, but terrifying Ooh. to a seven-year-old from Ellesmere Port. Do you remember this guy? Yes, I do. He moves very quickly. The Raston <laughs> Robot. Is basically, um, it kind of jumps in the air like a ballet dancer and blinks out of existence and teleports somewhere else. It lays waste to a small platoon of Cybermen in the 20th anniversary Doctor Who story, The Five Doctors. It's particularly scarring for me. I mean, Dave, you, you probably didn't like the Raston robot anyway. Basically, this robot is throwing spears out of its arms, these white spears at Cybermen, chopping the heads off, like taking their arms off. There's a short, like, it must be two or three seconds long. This scene of a Cyberman with a rust-on spear through its chest, it bends over and vomits thick white milk. Oh. And as a, what, I would have been, what, 14, I was horrified more than anything else. It just gave me a jolt because I don't like seeing people vomit. Is that a little bit like, uh, I remember in Alien, when they finally work out what the, the droid, the the uh, AI guy is, the robot guy is, mm. and he kind of vomits a bit of kind of gross yeah, like, robot, exactly, robot yeah. vom. Yeah, well, I think I think wow. I hated that as well. That, that series, the series that followed that, they really followed up on that with much more vomiting because in the next... In, <laughs> sorry about this, Andy. In the, in the next uh, series, I think it's Warriors of the Deep, it ends, spoilers, it ends with them releasing a poison gas into the atmosphere and all the sea devils and the Silurians vomit themselves to death. It's more vomit. Bloody yeah. hell. Yeah, lots of They it. must have had a production means. It's like, we just get a bit more vomit in this this season. <laughs> um, they're great. Keep them coming in. Your scars. Uh, you can tweet us at Scarred for Life 2. Uh, let's move on then. This week's guest is a broadcaster, journalist and author and has a range of interests and pastimes so huge it seems a miracle that she finds time to sleep. Working as a professional illustrator and assistant head of design at Edinburgh's National Museum of Antiquities as well as enjoying a brief stint in the punk band The Family Von Trapp, she found fame in the early 80s as a presenter on Channel 4's legendary music show The Tube. Since then, she's been a regular presenter on BBC Radio, written for a long list of magazines and newspapers including The Guardian, the Sunday Herald, Bliss and Time Out and a television career takes in everything from Frocks on the Box to the Media Show and the Design Awards. Her passion for art has informed all corners of her career and her interest in mountaineering saw her make a cameo appearance in Scotland's iconic comic strip, The Bruins. On top of all that, and of particular interest to us here on Scarred for Life, she is a best-selling horror novelist in the form of The Trickster, Furnace and The Ancient, which Stephen King himself described as scary and unputdownable. Muriel Gray, welcome to Scarred for Life. Oh, it's absolutely great. Thank you. I was going to make you bigger so I can see you better. Oh, yes, there you are. Hello. Can you see me all right? We can it's see you. Dark. Uh, where where are we? Fine. Where are we um, speaking to you from uh, right now? One of the best things about doing this podcast is peering into, you know, different people's uh, uh, studies, lobbies. <laughs> where are you right now, Muriel? I'm in, I'm in Glasgow right now in my extremely untidy office, which I'm really ashamed of. And I did try, actually, when, when COVID hit and we had to do all these Zooms, I did try putting a curtain up behind me and then and it fell down rather dramatically halfway through a, you know, a meeting. And like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it was a big reveal of a really scary um, So I've just gone with it there. So, uh, so it's chaos. As we, as we just heard there, Muriel, you, you've had such a varied career. And it's daunting stepping into a new sphere and doing a new thing. Uh, with that in mind, are you uh, insulated against being scared? Are you, do you or do you scare easily? No, I'm. I'm I have this. I have this conversation with a really good friend of mine, Mark Miller, who's a comic writer, but also a massive nerd. Like me, and we both were exposed to so much horror because the television was always on in our house, and my parents went to the library twice a week and were always, you know, someone reading their horror books and watching it. So we cannot be scared, and it's. It's like a, you know, it's just an awful affliction because you try to get that adrenaline hit. I mean, I mean, I mean, I sit and laugh through horror films, <laughs> and I don't want that. You know, I want, I want to, you know, to be framed again because it's the most marvelous 
people is feeling is terror, but you know you're safe. You know, it's terrifying watching news. Yeah. Um, that's proper terror. But but the escapism of horror, and I can't. It's been an ages since I have um, had that thrill again. You know, I think the last time actually was Paranormal Activity, the first one. Yeah. That was that was the first time that I could have went. That got me as well. I could have went. It terrified me. Yeah, I went. You know, it was, it was just the you know, sort of standing over the bed. You know, it was, it was brilliant. But um, there's a bit in that where a door opens by that's itself, right. and I, I was great. clutching. It's brilliant. The city. Yeah, it was such Amazing. a great concept, wasn't it? And it looked, it looked like they just battered yeah. it off. But of course, they built this set and everything for years. And everything. There's no such thing as battering off genius, really. So, um, but that's that is genuinely the last time as an adult. I have I've had even the tiniest tingle of fear. When when was that? Was that the nineties? Two thousands. Two thousands. Yeah, mid to late two thousands. That's yeah, that's, a bit of a, quite a while ago. So I keep trying, keep trying, but um, I just laugh. Is that the ultimate irony that almost is like something from a Stephen King short story? Then that that you know, if you're involved in the world of creating or writing horror or making it, then the irony is then yeah. you, you lose the ability for it to affect you. Yeah. I think that's true because it's like, you know, my friends are comedians, the same thing. They find it really hard to laugh at things because they're just like writing their notes going, that's funnier than me. And um, so, yeah, it's and, and I do long for it, you know, because it's, it is the most thrilling thing to be taken into that world, you know, where anything can happen. But it's the rules. There are rules. That's the thing that it's a universe that is perfect. But um. No, I, I mean, I still read tons and tons of horror, obviously, but um, and I, and I just admire the craftsmanship of it rather than actually keeping me awake at night. So, You mentioned uh, being a massive nerd. We 100% endorse that on this podcast. Uh, tell us about your... Hooray! 100%. Uh, in, tell us about your, your we nerdery. We eventually became cool. Yeah, exactly. We just eventually became cool. Yeah. Played the long game. We played the long game. I was so unpopular. <laughs> I <was just> going, <laughs> Where are you now? Where are you now? <laughs> well, I grew up with comics, Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. It's the coolest thing this ever now. The, I, I, the joke growing up when I was a kid was I would hide my Spider-Man comics in a porno mag <laughs> because I'd be less embarrassed to, to be seen reading a porno mag. So it's true. all cool. I know. I used to be so yeah. embarrassed about the pan book of horror story. Do you remember that was that? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, there you go. Yeah. Favorite. And then, yeah. and then just I still so love bizarre. Dennis Wheatley as well when I was a kid. You might have asked me the way before oh, your time. Yeah. That, you know, the devil rides out and he's right. No, great, you're a proper yeah. nerd. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, well Dave and, and, and Steve met through uh, Forbidden Planet in Liverpool, which was kind of like a, a oh, staging oh, post right. of, of really? um, you know, of science fiction and, and counterculture stuff. Yes. It, was there a place for you, like a bookshop or, or a video shop or somewhere for you, Mural, that was like a really important well, for you? No, weirdly enough, um, my, my dad's parents, um, uh, <laughs> I don't know, they, they lived in a room, what we call here a room and kitchen in Glasgow. It just means you've got an outside toilet, a tenement block. With an outside toilet, and yeah, the whole close would share it and everything. So that was then that they were there right up until the seventies, and so um, and both of them, my granny and grandma, were just basically old alkies. <laughs> <laughs> so when they babysat, <laughs> when they babysat, um, they were just going to leave my, my brother and I outside the pub, which is at the corner of North Side Road, which is called Clancy's at the time. But next door to my granny and granddad's close was this shop that had imported um, American comics. And they were really expensive because they were all shiny and gorgeous. I mean, but the old drunks coming out of Clancy's felt really sorry for us because we were just standing out in cold waiting for my granny and granddad's come out from the pub. And they go, oh, there you go, son. There you go. We last year, there's you know, 10 shillings for you. And we just take that money. We were trying to look sad and cold. We weren't at all. And we're going to sit in this guy's um, thing because we were spending so much money. We'd give him like you know, 10 shillings. Um, and to buy this um, comic, he let us sit in the warm place. So that's where it started, really, was the appalling babysitting 
um, <laughs> parents. <laughs> you get your hand up like this is a yeah. proper Zoom meeting. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. I'll do a risk yeah. committee. Oh, yes. yeah. I have a point of order. <laughs> yeah. To get back sorry, to, to, to grannies being alcoholics, uh, my, my, yes. my Irish gran, my Irish nan, used to babysit me and she would line Guinness bottles up along the mantelpiece in my front room. And she would, as she reminded me, she would drink her way from one end of the mantelpiece to the other. And by the time I'm up, bad, a baby, right? You must be terrible to look after. Well, that's what she used to say. But by the time my mum and dad came back from wherever they were, she was quite belligerent and telling them that I was the worst child ever. <laughs> well, my this this alcoholic granny might come back into this meeting again, actually, because there's another proper story around it. But it said features large, <laughs> so that was my first introduction to it. And um, from a very early age, then my my mum and dad were massive horror fans and huge M R James fans and oh, all wow. that stuff. So, um, they so I kind of got off them as well. Um, I mean, I'm, I remember going up to Edinburgh a lot when I was a kid because my uncle was a lecturer at the university there, and he used to regale us with some unbelievable. Scottish ghost stories. Do you think Scotland in particular is like fertile ground for the unusual and and ghosts and 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 stories like that? Would you say, Muriel? Really, actually, because we think of all the kind of all the this. I mean, obviously, by every anthology of Scottish ghost stories, really, they're all pretty shit, really. No, not really. I mean, it's a nice theory. And there are obviously some amazing, you know, uh, Scottish writers of Supernatural. I mean, Walter Scott wrote Supernatural stuff and everything. And, you know, um, Jim Barry and Barry Bond. But um, to say that we're, that's our speciality, no, I wouldn't say so. No. I wouldn't really say so. Cause I, I, um, but, yeah, well, obviously me. I mean, yeah, me. I'm Scottish and I'm obviously a hugely famous horror writer. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's 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 talk about that. You know, you're an accomplished author as well. Uh, what do you say? What would you think are the the key ingredients to a great horror novel? And how, how do you know at the beginning that you can write horror? It's something that's in your locker. Where, where, where does that thought come from? I just always wanted to do it. But it took actually having a baby to actually get down and do it. You know, because I had to sort of give up presenting and producing and directing because you know I had a, a, a beer to look after and I tried carrying on my presenting career with taking him with me but it just didn't work so um I thought oh now's a chance then just to do what I've always wanted to do which is write a horror novel and I you know I, I basically just copied Stephen King so <laughs> <laughs> so co- it's all coming out now I was going to ask you what was one of my questions is what was your biggest influences but there we go <laughs> you just ripped him off well I thought I mean it was really so cynical about it but I thought Who's the you know who's my favourite you know like absolutely can't get me to get then Stephen King we'll just we'll just copy him then so, <laughs> um, uh, so I didn't write uh, I mean God nowadays we just write what you know and don't step out of your lane and so I just I, I just wrote about things that I was absolutely fascinated about and because the first horror novel was set in Canada when they were building the Canadian Pacific uh, Railway you know um, there was a huge Scottish uh, influence in that um, and so. Uh, and I was fascinated by, you know, native um, Canadians and blah, blah, blah. So uh, I, I set it there and I had, an, I had an idea for it when when I was in Canada. And then I went back to Canada to do research for it on an Indian reservation by there. Um, and so, but I wrote it very much um, in an American style, I suppose you could say, even though it was an authentic, my voice. Um, I didn't, didn't go down the route of having a ghost story in a tenement, you know, um, I just thought that weirdly, you know, weirdly that would have been more disingenuous. Just sort of like you know, sort of played the Scottish card and gone, oh, I'm going to you know write a story in the back courts to alcoholic grandparents <laughs> find something terrible. You know? Bottles of Guinness <laughs> on the mantelpiece, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Guinness lined up in the eyes. I love it. <laughs> I, I think it was more authentic for me to want to emulate my hero really and um, and do that sort of small town big fear thing so that that's what did it and uh and, and weirdly enough i just got this immediate bidding order for it so it was fantastic so i got a three book deal from harper collins which is great um and the first one did really really well and then i found it really hard to the next two difficult second album well is it, is it a nightmare so, um, getting a, a multi-book deal because is it, is it panic you out yeah, a little bit horrible. yeah totally freaks you out because i'm incredibly um diligent and I, I won't write a thing unless somebody asks me to do it I'm so lazy. I mean, I'm just absolutely <laughs> shockingly lazy. But if somebody's have signed the contract and taken somebody's money, I have to have to deliver. And there's actually it's a really good way to write because 
as you you people all know it writing's hard work isn't it i mean that's people laugh at it but it's really yeah. hard work you've got to have massive creative energy and um, you know and you really struggle with it and get over the difficult bits and so um so i did that when i was quite young i'm very old now as you can see so get out of here well i mean um where did you write muriel because like in a, one of my friends has written a novel and she went to the um the library at ealing because she didn't want to be on her own oh, lovely great uh, well, I, I actually just wrote uh, in the in the house on an old um, like one of these old computers. This is how long ago it was. We had to do the control thing, you know, and you had to type in the code to open the thing up. Wow. And then you couldn't save it, and I was so frightened of not saving it. I had a printer that had the little holes down the wow. sides, you know what I mean, that fed the paper through it. So way early before the internet, so I had to do all my research in the Mitchell Library, which I did, uh, and also I, I flew out to Canada and. Um, uh, went to all the places. Actually, uh, it took me it took me weeks and weeks and weeks to to win over the um, uh, trust of this absolutely amazing group of uh, native Canadians who lived in a reservation called Cochrane outside Calgary. Um, and so, once I'd done that, I got invited into the community. I, I ended up writing more about them than the story. But anyway, wouldn't that be amazing though? Do, the bit I would think, not that I have writing a novel in me at all, but going to do the research must be must be great though. With like a yeah, no I'll tell you this for a second. Oh, no, it's, I mean, the problem is you do end up getting really slightly obsessed by the thing that you're researching. Rather than, you've got to remember, this is this is a made-up story, and there's going to be a plot and character. Because the second novel I wrote, Furnace, was, was a, about a truck driver. And, again, I wrote to the American Truck Drivers Association and said, is anybody willing to take me as a passenger on a, you know, on a truck, you know, for a few weeks? And this then this guy, Ray Kasiki, who still keeps in touch, absolutely brilliant, he said, yeah, he drove a big um, uh, flatbed and he just hauled up and down the coast of America. And so we just slept head to toe in this wee cab for weeks, driving anywhere like Nashville. And oh, wow. It was brilliant. What an amazing experience. <laughs> Oh, it was fantastic. Absolutely brilliant, you know. Um, so just so many big Peterbilt trucks. And so, I mean, I saw a state of America during that trip. I think most Americans would never have seen, you know, truck stops and speak. And again, way, way before mobile phones and the internet, so it was all CP radio and so on. But uh, no, I love that. It was really, really great. And with the third book, you see I was obsessed by things like big railways, great big trucks. So the last one was a great big tanker. <laughs> so, so I went onto a Colombian oil tanker that was that was anchored here. Wow. Was, yeah, it was great, which was very funny at the time I was being allowed to look around because um <laughs> acts guys and the immigration guys were ripping it apart looking for drugs because it's coming from Colombia. And there's this people like, yeah, this happens all the time. So I've been to coffer dams and all that stuff. So it was really good. Oh wow, that's an amazing thing to go and research. So, is there is there like, do you think there is a bit of a, a there isn't a formula for writing a good horror novel? But are there any kind of key components that you think that need to be in there at all? I, I think one of the most important things is is even if you're creating a, a a mad universe like King does, for instance, or Clive Barker, say, it still has to make sense. So you can't just make up something and then then anything can happen. If anything can happen, then it's boring frankly, right. you know, it, there's got to be rules. And so, I mean, actually a brilliant horror, oh God, I should have written her name down, who wrote The Last House on Needless Street? So brilliant, absolutely so brilliant. I need to Google it while I'm speaking to you, she serves a shout out. In fact, she won the Shirley Jackson um, prize. Absolutely brilliant. And again, it, it wasn't, it was, I can look Catriona it. Ward. Thank you, that's how, yeah, it was great. It was such a, a refreshing thing. It wasn't, it, it was, and at the beginning, I thought, I'm I'm not sure about this because it was, I thought it was breaking the rules that it was going to be supernatural and then not be supernatural, you see what I mean? But it didn't break any of the rules and it was just stunning. So I don't like it when somebody, you know, bowls you a googly, if you like, at the beginning, goes, this is going to take you, and then it doesn't. So stick, stick, stick in your universe, really, and then you can do anything. Then the further you push the envelope, the more frightening it becomes. I mean, I have a really lovely story about that, but it sounds like I'm showing off. Oh, go on, go on. Say it. Yeah, of course. <laughs> oh, yeah. <Please. laughs> um, obviously, Stephen King was just like my biggest hero ever. And um, I think we were on holiday somewhere and I read in the newspaper that he was coming to the Royal Festival Hall to uh, um, an interview. Never did interviews. Do you remember that? Never did any interviews. You never saw him or anything. 
Um, I mean, obviously it's all changed since then. And I, and I said to him, I was like, oh, I've, got to get, I've got to get a ticket for that. I can't wait to get a ticket for that. I'd written, I had written uh, the trickster and furnace by then. I was still to write the ancient. And um, uh, so anyway, I I, I went on uh, to you know <laughs> the phone to try and get a ticket, and then I suddenly got a call from um, my manager. Said, "Well, oh, by the way, this this coming. Stephen King wants you to interview him." Went, oh my word! What? Whoa. I mean, actually, what? So, how long? Sorry, short. He's asked for me because he'd read both of the books, and um. And so I went along and interviewed him, and I, I, I mean, I remember sitting in the dark just for the sound check, and he came and said, "Where's Muriel?" <laughs> I thought, I, nothing will ever top this. But the, the, the show of it was he, in the dressing room. He got his little bag out of his satchel, like his schoolboy satchel. He said, "I just, I just want you to sign your book to me." Oh and my word! And it was furnace, and then I went, and, I, and he said, "Ah." Oh, he said, it's great. How, I love to see I tell you what I loved about this. I love the small town, you know, fear, you know, that something really weird happening in a small town. And I said, but you invented that. And then he went, hell, so I did. <laughs> <laughs> and is he a nice guy? He seems like he's quite a nice guy. Oh, well, here's how nice he is. I was really pregnant at that time when I did that. Um, not by Stephen King. <laughs> 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 Just to quash that rumour. <laughs> That would have been quite the scoop. And, um, yeah, and I was having to interview him about a really difficult book that actually triggered all kinds of things to me. But anyway, um, when I delivered my third book, he, he asked to see it, and then he wrote me this amazing cover quote. And I said, that's how nice he is. Yeah, he's brilliant. He's absolutely fantastic. Oh, It's audit and risk again. I, sorry, I just love the idea that you do, like, you immerse yourself in research, because I can now see you put an advert in the paper saying, does anyone need any help with body snatching for the next three weeks? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. involved well well it's it's it gives us such authenticity because then you know you can you can feel it you can smell it and then it gives you the opportunity to then take your imagination and go what if you know what if that happened what if that happened but if you if that bit doesn't ring true then how are you how are you gonna do this you see again if we go back to king's work so focusing in far too much because there's so many other people to talk about but um I mean, that was what made him so famous, was taking the absolute authentic, you know, blue-collar worker of America and then introducing, you know, amazingly kind of fantastical ideas. And that's that's not really a genre. It was just him observing his life and going, what would happen this? So I was, I was going to ask, because I'm a horror obsessive. I've been, I mean, I can't even remember getting into horror. It, as far as I remember, it's just always been a part of my life since I was three. So... I take it you were always a horror obsessive, like yeah. me, since you were a kid, a little kid. Yeah. What did you grow up on then? What was your what was your horror fix when you were little? Then? Oh, uh, everything like I just said, my mother let me watch anything, and uh, you know, like <laughs> yeah, mine did. Turn of the screw. Because do you remember? I don't. Do we, were your parents the same? Actually, so with, with they would put the telly on and they wouldn't turn it off because they said they couldn't turn it on off because the tubes had to heat up. Do you remember that? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the ozone smell. My mum and dad. <laughs> Didn't keep tabs on what I was reading yeah, or watching. So I had very strict, very strict bedtimes. Yeah. Monday to Friday, yeah. it was a school night. Friday night and Saturday night, my mum would come downstairs and go, "Are you coming to bed?" And it was a half one in the absolutely morning same. when I'm watching horror films. I know, absolutely the same. And also, they like watching them as well because my mum and I really, really loved um, uh, watching it. And so, just had you know, had some inbuilt, inbuilt sort of family love of horror. Yeah, my my, so my horror childhood is when my mum and dad got a new TV, I was given the oh. old black and white TV. Like, no. That I know. Creepy, uh, yes. That is so posh, your own TV. Uh, yeah. What age were you? Six, seven, something like that. Oh, that's, no, that's, that is Beckham's. <laughs> and, uh, David, David's very well healed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but the, it, it, it was this. It was this. I had to wait till I left home. It was one of these things that looked a bit like a Georgian cabinet type thing, you know, like wonky legs and all sorts. Of, and I could take it to my bedroom, and I'd sit up watching those horror double bills on the BBC of a, you know, there'd be, there'd be like a like a ropey old uh, Lionel Atwell film from the forties, The Battles, or something like that. And, and then you'd have those Amicus Portmanteau horrors, you know, all of. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and then do you remember because I mean, there were so many um, portmanteau horrors. And there were also loads of series on TV, you know, that were, yeah, um, yeah just like short stories. But I mean, I watched 
term for that. But anyway, you know what I mean, like kind of carnival of fear and all this kind of stuff. I absolutely loved it. But um, God, I didn't even tell you at seven. I mean, I actually, the first time I had my own telly was, I was 20 when I left home and I had a black and white telly that worked on a car battery because uh, I had only one Bakelite there. There was one wow. Bakelite plug. I was a very naggy child. Little yeah, little yeah. Lord Fonteroy, we call him on this podcast. Yeah, little diva. What Dave wants, Dave gets. Yeah. Um, I was just going to ask you, uh, final thing before we get to your scars mural. When you finish writing a book, is there one person you give it to to read that you trust for their opinion, or do you just send it to the, the editor? Is it just the editor? Just the editor. Yeah, nobody's interested in what I write. I mean, absolutely, literally nobody. I remember my husband looking over my head, my shoulder once when I was work, working something. But I was really proud of it, giving me, you know, a bit. Ooh. And they went, "Well, that would never happen." I go, what's that point? Of course, that would never happen. It's all over. It never happen. Deary me, that, that's not very supportive, it is it? The laws of physics would have to change. Uh, well, so no, straight to it. And I have to say, my my editor is actually one of the most famous editors in the world, Jane Johnson, who who did all of the Lord of Rings, and um, she was wow. the uh, yeah. So, okay, Blimey. So, I know she was absolutely, and one of her most famous edits. I kept on my thing because she used to write in pen and send it back. It was just down one side. It went, oh, please. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I wish you could do that on WhatsApp chat. That'd be fantastic. Um, okay, well, this is a perfect segue, Muriel, into uh, the way this podcast works. Is uh, You bring with you three things that have scarred you for life. Could we please get your first scar? Right. Well, first scar, and I had to look this up for the date to see what it was. Um, actually... I wonder if this is real. Am I allowed to sort of like slightly kind of blur this first scar? Or is that not really the rules? Do whatever you I'm like. I'm sticking to the rules. <laughs> okay, well, well, it should have been, <laughs> it should have been, actually, in the universe coming up almost immediately, when I was five and I watched Doctor Who, right? Because my mum, of course, not let me watch Doctor Who, and I, so I watched this Doctor Who, and I was five years old, because I'm 65, and, uh, and I remember it. Like it was yesterday, and I'm watching. I remember hiding behind something. So I remember this caveman. It was like really terrifying this caveman, great big hairy caveman. And so I went to bed. A bit, a bit, my mum said, "Oh, maybe I shouldn't have let you watch that." And the five-year-old me went, "Oh, oh." And so when I went to bed, I went, hm, hm, hm. and she came home and said, "Are you scared?" I went, oh, I'm really scared. And so she lit the fire. I was really, you know, just She lit the fire in my bedroom, and she went on top of the wardrobe and brought down. This amazing thing that she'd obviously bought for your early for Christmas. Which remember those little wooden things where little animals fit into them and you pull yeah. them out with a wee, yeah, yeah like like fret cut oh, thing. Oh yeah, yeah. And, and she gave me that. And it was obviously an early Christmas present. I just thought this is great. <laughs> and I wasn't at all phrased. I'm afraid I just wasn't really. I was just just actually using it. So the first time I actually get rid of it. So this is a proper scar. And you're going to laugh at me here, but it was the Benny Hill show, which we all watched as a family, right? <laughs> and don't laugh. And, and, and we all got around the town and watched the Benny Hill show. And it was a it's, lovely. It's not Ernie, Ernie the Milkman, is it, Muriel? No, no. There was a thing in it where he, he was pretending to be he used to do this thing where he was Fred Scuttle, a film director, and, he, and and so it was a big sketch about him being this film director, Fred Scuttle, who was making this um, horror film. And so then they cut to the horror film that Fred Scott. I might be as well laughing my head off, but it was a television set that the family turned off and gone upstairs to bed, turned all the lights on. And then this television grew claws and it came alive in a big, nasty eyes and then started, you know, unplugged itself and started. Bloody hell. Yeah, yeah looking up. It's, yeah, it's, actually it's not very Benny Hill, is it? No, and it was climbing up the stairs to get them. And I was absolutely petrified. And because my parents were laughing, and I went, and then I went to bed and I was really frightened that the telly was going to come up the stairs and get us. Is that you, Harry? No, I'll be Timmy, love. If Harry was in bed. <laughs> so... That was a wow. proper star. I mean, this, this is a recurrent theme, actually, with this podcast. Sometimes when um, comedy turns bad or sinister, yeah. it, it's more scary than maybe you're, you're expecting a scare. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Well, that's the thing. There's, with a comedy show, you expect to laugh. 
we, we talk about this. There's the two Ronnies, which obviously is a cuddly light entertainment thing. When I was a kid, they had that continuing weekly serial every series, and one of them was the Phantom Raspberry Blower of Old London Town. Oh yes, I remember and that. Yes, it, it scared the shit. It was like Jack the Ripper. That's it's right. Like, yeah, but he kind of had his cape and went. I saw that. And yeah. people would die of fright, but it was filmed. Yeah. Like a horror film. Well, when I they, thought it was horrible. When they did comedy then, or it, when it was when it was broken comedy, like the two Ronnies, and I'm going to get boring. That is, is that um, in the studio it was on tape, and then when they went out of the studio, obviously the cameras were too heavy, so it was all on film. It was on 35 mil, and so every you know, so that was shot outside on location. So it already had that you know from the lighting to it. So I, I still remember that too. You're absolutely right. Uh, you know, and, yeah, and don't watch the video. And the Fred Scuttle <laughs> piece, which I mean, I watched it on the train actually on the, on the way back. Oh, home did you see? Have you seen it? it is it's horrible, isn't it? Absolutely horrible. There was a guy watching over my shoulder as well, thinking, "What's this guy looking at on his phone?" Um, but the bit that it, it's it's kind of obviously aping the Twilight Zone a little bit. And do you know what? what yes, yeah. One thing getting into this this podcast series, I thought more people would would um, pick Twilight Zone episodes as, as scary because it kind of scared the life out of me a little bit but maybe i don't know what's your view of the twilight zone mural is that something that you oh no i just it didn't yeah it didn't scare didn't me scare i absolutely just ate it up i just just devoured it but because it was a mix between science fiction and horror you know it aired much more to the science fiction side which i also am a huge science fiction fan as well obviously but um science fiction is really scary you know it, uh, well it's alien or something but you know it, it's it's more thoughtful there's always imagine the time imagine if you would you know a man on a plane yeah. Yeah, do you remember that one the yes. guy in the plane he sees the monster yeah. Yeah. so yeah that's right i love that um so no it, again i just consumed that hungrily but never really being scared by it and so i think you're right dave it, it's uh, sorry to do that that it, it's um it's that you don't expect to be scared in a comedy show so that's why you go oh. Whereas in the Twilight Zone, you know it's going to be scary. And what was the one that started? Do you remember the TV series? It's a fairground going round and round that was had nobody in it. Do you remember? It tells me. Tells I think me it was like. It's a big top. It had, had a sort of, um, you know, a big wheel. And it would go. That really do, rings do, a bell. Do, do, I'm do, sure it's do, like do, early seventies. It was early seventies, and then it was again. It was a, it was sh- short stories put together, and it was brilliant. I love that one. Babe. It's not um, <laughs> it's not a box of delights or anything like that, is it? Or no, it's uh, no, no. That's John Maysfield. No, that's a no. very brilliant thing. I've actually got the series you're talking about, and I got it on this ripped bootleg DVD, oh. and I need to. I've, what is it? I can't remember. Then I would have a good thing. I would oh, you back. tell me. Okay. I will. Please do because I, I I'd love to see it again. Is Dennis Waterman in the first episode, Dave? He's bound to be in if something, you know. <laughs> right, okay. Dig it out, find out. I've nearly got something. So the tip of my tongue, I'll probably remember it as soon as we stop doing this. But anyway, it was. I mean, I watched that regularly because it was absolutely fantastic. I've, I've literally just watched the Benny Hill TV. It's the feet. The feet of that TV are creepy. Oh, it's yeah, oh, it's yeah. horrible. And also the eyes. The mad thing is. The studio audience are in pleats of laughter all the way through. I watched it last night. It's horrible. If I was five, it would have traumatised me. It's got an uh, American Werewolf in London yeah. kind of pulsating, it has, growing it feet really thing has. going on it there really as well. Has. It really, really, really has. <laughs> so it comes with a warning watching that. It does come with a bit of a warning. Oh, I love that movie. I just, it's funny. I haven't thought about that movie. For you, but that's a brilliant, brilliant movie. Because, again, that's comedy. And horrors of all you whoa, we don't see your type down here much. And then it's I mean it's taking <laughs> the bit in fact the most frightening bit in that film is the waking up and thinking it's a dream and then waking up again. Yeah. It's just genius. Yeah. I mean it copied a million times over, but I think that was the first time that was used, wasn't it? Well that's a big thing about horror comedies. It's mm. it's this I think the secret to it is to Never dilute the horror. Absolutely. Theatre of Blood yeah. is one of my favourite films. Oh, yes. It's laugh out loud funny, yeah. but the horror, yeah. it absolutely traumatised me as a kid. There's the scene where, um, what's his name, Arthur Lowe's head. Oh, gosh, yes. They slice it off, but put it back on the That's body okay. so neatly. When the wife wakes up and tries to shake him awake and his head Hold rolls off. off his body. Oh, do, my do you know God. What? I can never <laughs> work out why his head is on the milk bottle at the end of that scene. Well... Oh, yeah, it is. It's kind of petulant. I'm not sure. Did that... they replace his real head with, like, a waxwork head and put his real head on the milk bottle on the step? Was that a good No, it was supposed to be his real head. Not that. 
Yes. Yes, it was. Not, I mean, it was it was very R. Chetwynd Hayes. Do you all remember R. Chetwynd Hayes? Yeah. Who wrote, who yeah. wrote really kind of uh, awful horror things in sort of little bed sits and kind of, you know, Peckham and stuff like that. It was real kind of absolutely brilliant sort of lower middle class bed sits and things like that. And that's what that reminds me of. It was great. That real kind of British sort of seedy horror. I love that. So- I nearly met him. Missed him by one by one fantasy conference. I- well, uh, Benny Hill, wow. Benny Hill, Fred Scuttle is going in as your first scar mural. Oh, right. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Concentrate. Sorry. <laughs> it was a good diversion. It was a good diversion, everybody. And by the way, if you know what that program is, do drop us an email or tweet oh, us at Scar for Life 2. I'll find out later. Yes. Dave's going to find out. It starts with that, starts with like, you know, a, an empty fairground with a big wheel going around. And, I, and I've sung you the theme tune, I think, rather brilliantly. When Dave goes through his bootleg DVD collection, we'll know. Mural, could we please get your I second pretend scar, I pretend I didn't please? hear that. Uh, yes, I'm not hearing the bootleg <laughs> thing because that's against the law and I'm a member of Bath. Scotland Yard's bootleg yes, DVD. Don't approve of bootleg. Squad will be on there. Don't way. like that. We don't like that. Uh, second scar was I was 15 years old and um, I went down with my friend Isla McNabb to stay with my uh, Auntie Agnes in Slough. We had a cow's eyes there because we were both in love with Elton John. And she, that and Slough was quite near Virginia Waters and we thought if we wandered around Virginia Waters we'd get to meet him because I wanted to marry him. We were a little bit off being men. Didn't actually know what was going on. But, yeah. <laughs> did, you see Elton, did you see Elton at all, or was he out and about? I didn't see Elton. No, just got blisters walking round and round Virginia Waters, getting the getting the bus back to Slough. But while I was there, we noticed that the there was a preview in Leicester Square uh, opening of The Exorcist, this film that I'd heard loads about. And I was only fifteen. I was wondering if we can get into Tom Woods and makeup. Of course, we got in, and so we saw. The first showing of The Exorcist, Mister Square, and uh, and I just wasn't really ready for that at fifteen. Even though I said, you know, <laughs> you're immune to horror, it was so brilliant. And Isla and I were sharing the double bed in my aunt uh, Agnes's house, and I waited until she'd gone to sleep, and I just started shaking the bed like that. <laughs> she left up and screamed so <laughs> and the neighbors I'm gonna call the police and stuff. So um yeah, that that stayed with me. But once again, I was fifteen, that had massive effect on me. I spent an evening in the lobby just to see if people really do come stumbling out in the middle of the picture as reported. They did, so I asked them why. It just scared me to death. Things just like this just it just scared, really scared me to death. I'm just nervous. Do you remember what particular scene it was that... Uh, when that... she was in, what was it? When she was in a room, the doctors came in and she was, when I guess it was when she was talking to Devil's Voice. Oh... Oh, God, I can't believe it. However, um, you go back and see it, and it, 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 it's still the most brilliant film, but you just, as a grown-up now, you realise it's not about horror, it's about guilt. Right. You know, it's about the guilt of the, the actress woman not looking after his daughter, it's the guilt of the priest not looking after his mom. it's the guilt of the priest not having got rid of the demon, and it's just a beautifully, beautifully made film. But um, it was, I wasn't expecting it to be that terrifying. It's not terrifying anymore, obviously, it's funny. No, but um, it, it was frightening. And is that like a delayed, almost kind of delayed shock, post-traumatic stress that you had there with this uh, shivering later on in the evening, having watched it at the time? Yeah, it's, I mean, it, it stayed with me for ages. I mean, it was like, I thought, and because of the age I was, you know, girls at that age, I remember going back at school and someone said, let's see the Ouija board. I went, no, 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 <laughs> no, and there was no Ouija board parties. And I, um, so, and it, and, and it did make me think if ever there was a noise in the attic or anything, you know. Yeah. So that film did that for you. It made, it made you question the, the rat in the attic thing. Um, but it, it, it didn't, I'm being slightly disingenuous. I'm really scrabbling around to find scars because... I'm not very scarred. Unscarable <laughs> so, uh, in the world of horror, Muriel. <laughs> yes, unscarable in the world of horror, actually. In fact, it's the opposite. It's been it's my comfort, if, if you know what I mean. Dave. Yeah, sorry, I know what your programme yeah. is. It's Journey to the Unknown. That's it! Journey to the Unknown. Thank Fantastic. you. Fantastic. I'm going to write that down. That's brilliant. I wonder if you can still guess it. It was a Journey to the Unknown. Thank you. And I got this theme tune right, yes. didn't I? <laughs> You did? <laughs> yeah, that was, I loved that very much. It was brilliant. But there was a whole bunch of those, wasn't there, on TV and the enemies? It's funny how 
brilliant, yeah. brilliant. Steve and Reese um, have brought, have made Inside Number Nine, that brought back that old thing of having that kind of sort of play for today idea because it was so popular. There were loads of series that coming out of America, British TV that had sort of those portmanteau stories, but uh, it's taken. There's millions of them. I mean, obviously, Tales of the, Tales of the Unexpected. Yeah, that, that wasn't a horror, that was kind of the tale type. Yeah. But 1970s, my God, there was thriller, armchair yep, thriller. Everything. There's one called Shadows of Fear yes, that completely yes, fell off the place. Right. It's one of one of the best things I've ever seen in my it's life. It's brilliant, I know. But it's got this really nasty streak. I remember writing about that for Scarred for Life Volume 1. And my ex-girlfriend at the time walked in with her tea halfway through an episode of Shadows of Fear I was watching. Didn't know what was going on. Just sat down and watched it with me. And when it ended, she went, fucking hell, what was, that was horrible. What are you watching? It's not gory. It's no jump scares. It's just nasty. Yeah, terrifying. Tell us you expected it's got uh, flypaper, hasn't it? And it's got... Uh, the, the, yeah, and the landlady. My my wife cannot watch the landlady. The one yeah. where she's using t- she's using taxidermy <laughs> on all the royal yeah. jelly. It did. It dipped its toe in yeah. horror. Beautiful. Brilliant. So it's, it's so funny because I back yeah. in you know when I was a production company in the nineties. I remember going to Channel Four and everybody and going, look, how about doing this again? You know, it'd be really really great. And I went, nah, there's no appetite. It's so funny. There's no appetite for horror. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, well, let me take you forward 20 years. <laughs> you could have made this. But, um, in fact, we, the company, when Hammer um, went into the liquid or whatever, we tried, we tried to buy it, actually, so we could reboot it, but somebody got there first and ruined it there. That's beside the point. Do you want my third thing? Well, I was just going to ask you very quickly about this, the the second one there with, with The Exorcist. And this is a yes. thing that's come up on the podcast before. That that thing of, of films being banned or protests or places showing it or not. I know there's like a, there's, there was a bit of a thing around The Exorcist and everything like that as well. Do you think was there? in the modern era? Do you think films get that kind of banned? Cinema's not going to show it um, for moral furore anymore, or is it quite hard to kind of shock? Not people? around horror. No. <laughs> not around horror, and let's not go to what they ban for. Okay, not not on this podcast. Yes, I think lots of films would get banned now, but not because they're horrific. That's fair enough. Well, well, that's the thing. When you're talking about the the Exorcist being basically, I saw the Exorcist in I want to say 1988, 89, when I was 18 or 19, when it was top of the list in terms of the banned horror really? films that you couldn't get in this the country. The Exorcist was banned. It was on a vid for decades. It was um, from 70s to early 90s. I want to say. That's amazing. But it was like a, it was a holy grail film for kind of a horror obsessive like me, and I remember. I basically joined every video club in a two-mile radius around my mum and dad's. And I used to go to them and basically rent out the horror section. Oh, brilliant. A to Z. Just, I'd watch everything. And one of them, one of the lads that worked there, I never talked to him, I was too shy, but I remember renting a film, horror film, whatever it was, Anthropophagus the Beast or something ridiculous. And he said to me, you like your horror, don't you? And I said, yeah, yeah, I love it. And he went... And he kind of looked around furtively and pulled this drawer out from under the till. And it had The Exorcist, The Evil Dead, Clockwork wow, Orange, Click, every band film. So I rented The Exorcist on like a 10th generation copy on VHS <laughs> and took it home. And it it was the illicit thrill. Oh, yeah, that would have been a thrill, yeah. Yeah. The, So it added, yeah. it completely added to that kind we, of ambiance. We do apologise, Muriel. There just seems to be quite a, a strong theme of bootlegging going on in this particular Yeah, I'm, I'm horrified. At least I paid to get into the list. It's great. <laughs> I just want to say, I, I don't, I don't uh, partake in any counterfeits. It's mainly David's. No, the, only, the, only, the only bootleg copy of anything I own, which is terrible, is um, it was the Granada version of The Woman in Black. Do you remember the television yes. version? Oh, And it was not for wonderful. sale. And it's still not for sale on DVD. And so... I went onto some American website and I got a copy of it, and and uh, it's really you know crappy generation. But yeah, but even then, actually, there's thing that scared the Jesus out of me. I mean, and that guy who directed that, you know, was just a sort of jobbing TV director. He wasn't a famous horror director, I think. And it's and it has never been bettered. I mean, the film versions are rubbish, and that one is just so fantastic. I mean, do you remember Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Just... Well, we've, we've spoken to we've spoken to Andy Fuck Nyman. It. That was his first acting job, wasn't it? And... Oh, that's that's yeah, yeah. And so um, it's just 
absolutely fantastic. Her staring, you know, her face, her, she's just standing there staring. And he feels it in the back of his neck. Do you remember when she's yeah, in the graveyard yeah, and she's yeah. staring at him? Oh, <laughs> just great. And then, you know, of course. There's that scene where she basically, spoilers, where she floats through uh, the window into his bed. Uh, I'd never he, seen anything puts, so horrifying. It's absolutely it. brilliant. Again, it's a TV there's there's a TV drama and he puts his hand on the pillow and finds a toy soldier and then she's right there. Is oh, <laughs> oh absolutely brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I do love that right there thing, you know, you turn around and they're right there. That's uh, I've got some, that's always a good I've one. got some good news for you. You can actually get that on Blu-ray. Yes. Yeah, that's Le- legit. legit. Yes. You can legitimize your Hill was so proud. I can Susan Hill was terribly proud about it not being out on DVD. Do you just think that's like people going for the hundredth time. We do not sell hot chocolate. You know, it's going, <laughs> why, 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 why you <laughs> so oh, that's that is great. I'm going, I'm going straight on and buying that. Yes. Then it's great. Um, um, and to, I'd love to see it in really high quality. So good. And the remake with Daniel Radcliffe. I'm sorry, but dear old oh, dear old oh, dear. Oh, oh. Anyway, um, <clears throat> let's get your third and final scar, please, then Muriel. Well, <laughs> as you slightly remind me of something, so it would change my mind, but I'll, I'll stick with the one I had, which was, again, you know, mum and dad, massive, massive M.R. James fans, and so I you know, I had read it. But then you'll remember that it was Arthur, uh, not Arthur Miller, um, Thingy Miller, um, who, who, did, who did for an arena the first M.R. James John, Ghost Jonathan Miller. Christmas. Yes, thank you, Jonathan Miller. Jonathan Miller. Okay, Arthur Miller wrote, you know, Death of a Salesman. Um, so Jonathan Miller did, um, it was Whistle and I'll Come to You, my lad. Uh, and so, you know, I got to watch that. As it, did, it was brilliant. It was absolutely terrifying. Yeah. But then they did Lost Hearts, and it absolutely terrified you. They're ding, 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 you know, playing the mandolin with the big, oh, scary, the head the big scary fingers. But that, weirdly, has, hasn't aged that well, strangely, because um, Whistle and I'll Come to You has a still really creepy and I mean, but Lost Hearts is the weakest of that series. But it was the one that frightened me most as a child. But it, but you watch it now, and, and the, the the brilliant genius who's Mark Gatiss, uh, it's brilliant. He's rebooted that for the BBC. You know, does it every year, and you know he did Count Count Vegas last year, Banks. But um, yeah, so that really did slightly scar me because I was quite frightened of those children. But it didn't last. So you watch things now, and they're still scary. Do you remember one of the ghost stories for Christmas? They didn't stick with Emma James. They went with Dickens, the Signalman. Um, yes, yes. And and yeah. we just actually did, we just watched that again recently and it's still brilliant. Yep. It's still absolutely brilliant. You know, the bride falling to her death and they go, whoa, no there. Um yeah. that has aged brilliantly. Piece of salad, wasn't it? It was Denimel, wasn't it? Was it Denimel? Yeah, yes, Sorry, Denimel, not Peter Salas. Yeah. yeah, it was Denimel, thank you. Um and he's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. That haunted face, you know, he just he just oh it's just so great. It's the mouth that gets but me. The, other one, the mouth. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think that's the thing. There's there's a, every stage of horror you go through as a horror fan from when you're a kid. It's ghosts and spooks and stuff. And in my teenage years, it was um, gore and video yeah, nasties yeah. and intestines, which I soon grew out of. And it, but I don't watch them now. It just either bores yeah, me. Yeah, or I find me. I find you know torture porn not that interesting. Except. Uh, the, the only series I did love, because again, it's so clever with Hostel, because the story was so brilliant. It's such a great premise, yeah. such a great premise. And in, in yeah. the first one, they take a long, long time setting it up before they get to the actual kind of torturing, you know, sort of torturing students. Yeah. Who wouldn't like to torture a student occasionally? <laughs> but um, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but it's, it didn't get any... It's the horror that kind of crawls in my head and kind of it stays in my head and lays well, eggs that, and... That's, I can't yeah, stop thinking about it. That's peripheral horror versus, you know, it's like it's John Carpenter versus Alien, if you like. He's like, you know, uh, you know, Alien was all, you didn't get to see the monster. You were just terrified that it was coming for you. Whereas Carpenter just decided from the word go with the thing that you were going to see it and you're going to see it in full, you know, in full technicolor and light. And and they're two different approaches, obviously, and they both work fantastically because I'm a massive fan of, of both of those, of, of Ridley Scott and John Carpenter. But you're absolutely... Writes to you that it, it's the thing that you that's the MR James thing. He never tells you what the thing is, yeah. ever. What is it? It's like, you know, is it a demon? Thing? He doesn't tell you. Well, a couple of them are, are obviously ghosts because you get sort of, sort of a denouement of, well, that was her. Um, but some of them, what is it? You know, what's in, 
what's the thing? What's your, what have you just dug up? And so I, I, I agree with you. That's the horror that really sticks you. That's why paranormal activity was so frightening. Yeah. Um, and the Blair Witch yeah. Project as yeah. well, because you didn't know what it was, as you couldn't see it. Yeah, your okay. imagination kind of fills in the blanks a little bit there as well. Yeah. So, so there we go then. Your three scars mural: Benny Hill, Fred Scuttle, probably one of the most <laughs> unusual scars you've had so far. But having watched it on the train, you've got a point. Uh, number two, The Exorcist, and then yeah. number three, it's Lost a, Hearts, Mr. James. That's a bit obvious. I wish I'd been more original. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, absolutely spot on. No, they're great. Uh, mural, what, what what's next for you then? Obviously, you, 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 you've so many things you, you've achieved. What, what what's next for you? What's on the horizon? Well, um, I, to keep my hand, and I do, I do contribute to a lot of horror anthologies regularly because it's a bit, you know, like horror writings like weightlifting. You've got to keep doing it. But I do have about, I've actually got eleven unfinished books on my computer that stop at thirty-five thousand words. Wow! I know. I just don't wow. go there. I mean, I really do need a therapist, and uh, I have some very close friends who are <laughs> massively successful writers, and I think that's the problem: is that I need to hang out with really shitty writers. So that I really so think I get too busy. So I stop hanging out with multi-million bestsellers because then I look at I always go back to go. And so, um, so I suppose what's next for me because I'm totally just in horror terms. Obviously, I do lots of other things as well, but let's not let's not go there because they're all they're all difficult and ghastly. Um, I, I am I promise you I'm I'm going to do that and I'm going to promise you I will finish this this book because it's it's slightly supernatural or is it? It's one of those, and well, it'd be a waste of thirty-five thousand words. Yeah, what what is it about thirty-five? Thirty-five thousand that is the point where you, you, you. It is always the point. One of them stopped at twenty thousand. It's a really good one as well. Another, and I came up with this other idea, which I've only written fifteen. That was actually recently called the Ghost Therapist. This woman, I started to start telling. Thought I'm not going to do that. It'd be really boring. But um, but the one. That I, I must finish is called When I Leave the World Behind, and I must finish it. I good, must. good title. I it's a great title. It. It's an urban, it. urban Berlin yeah. song. Oh. <laughs> well, uh, it's been an absolute honour to have you on the podcast. Oh. Muriel Gray, thank you so much for chatting to Scarred for Life. Oh, no, the honour is mine. Thank you so much. That oh. was great fun. A massive honour to see you all. Thank you very much. That's it. That's another episode of uh, Scarred for Life in the can. Thank you so much for your company. We'll be back next week with another special guest sharing their deepest, darkest fears. A big thank you again to Muriel Gray. You can get in touch, and we love hearing from you at Scarred for Life 2 on Twitter, Scarred for Life Book on Instagram, or drop us an email, old school, contact at scarredforlifebooks.com. You've been listening to Scarred for Life. Thank you for joining us, and remember, do have nightmares. We'll see you next week. 